What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Behind the Badge. It's been a while. Uh, the guys here at the studio decided to get uh, up and move, you know, 30 miles away. So finally, we're able to trek our way down here. Uh, give you another episode of Behind the Badge, which we will bring to you, you know, every other week or so. We're going to try to get back at it. Uh, the professor is getting ready for school. He'll be back with us in future episodes, but today I wanted to bring a special guest on to talk about what is going on in this city of Philadelphia. You know, it is just mind-boggling how deadly it is, how bad it is, and just how unsafe everyone is today. With us, former district attorney, Mr. Seth Williams. Sir, thank you for coming by again. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Everybody, uh, that knows Mr. Williams was on our show before, talked about all the uh, past stuff, uh, his rise and fall. If you want to hear more about it, you can go to that episode. Seth has given multiple interviews to multiple people to talk about never hit away from anything. So if you want to know more about that, please uh, check out those videos. But here today, we need to talk about what is going on in this city how we can fix, how it can be fixed, how it can be saved, and, you know, where the root of the problems are. So, Seth, I was looking back in 2000, I believe 2011, 2012, uh, we worked with a a joint group of local, state, federal um, Law law enforcement agencies in a thing called Operation Pressure Point. Correct. It was a weekend detail uh, all throughout the summer, and it was very successful. In those years, 2011, is when the murder rate was 324. Following year, 2012, went to 331. But, and at the peak of when all, when the operation was really getting going, because we did it for quite a few years in a row. Sure. But when all law enforcement were putting their heads together, your office was coming up with strategies in 2013, we had 246 murders for the year. Correct. Today, we are at 337, up 12 murders from last year, a record-breaking year. Where, how in God's green earth are we able to save this? Yeah. Because we are in just unimaginable territories right now. So, Mark, one, I'm just very grateful uh, that you've invited me to be on to talk about this topic because every morning my, I say my morning prayers, right? Uh, and I, I take out my rosary. I say a rosary. Then I look at Twitter and where I look at the police crime stat numbers, um, and my head almost explodes every morning. And then it takes me the rest of the day to try to understand why everyone else is not as angry, upset, frustrated, furious, uh, and grieving Um, because the numbers of Philadelphians that are being murdered on our streets should be unacceptable to everyone, every age, every socioeconomic group, every race. Um, And it's just very, very, very tragic. So, yes, 
Um, I became the district attorney, uh, the 24th district attorney in the history of Philadelphia on January the 4th of 2010. I also happen to have been the first African-American district attorney in the history of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But I've been an assistant district attorney for 10 and a half years here in Philadelphia. I've been in the Army. Later, I was in the Army for 19 years as a major. I grew up in West Philadelphia. So I grew up appreciating the fact that the majority of crimes committed against African-American people were committed by African-American people against people in their community. Same is true for white people. The majority of crimes committed against white people are committed by white people in the white neighborhoods, right? Um, but I also knew that the people in my neighborhood were good people, right? My favorite aunt, my aunt Shirley, would go for walks on Cobbs Creek Parkway, but she had to carry a big stick. She didn't carry the stick because she was a shepherd. <laughs> she carried the sticks because kids that lived on Washington or Carpenter or Christian or along the parkway would, might try and rob her. She wanted, if they did rob her, she wanted them to be held accountable but not for the punishment to be so severe as to ruin their lives. Right. Right. So I grew up with that. My father was a school teacher. He ran the rec center in our neighborhood, the day camp in our neighborhood. The playground across the street has been named for him. A very good friend of his was Sergeant Frank Von Collin, who worked at the bottom of the hill at the park guard house. And in August of 1970, black nationalists came in and shot him in cold blood in his back and murdered him. So for a political reason, um, they shot this man who had been kind to me and my father. I then saw the police reaction to that was just over the top right. on how they abused black men in the neighborhood, strip searching them against the walls, group. So I saw that dichotomy of we want justice. Um, we want people to be held accountable. We want it to be done fairly. So that kind of drove me as an assistant DA and as the DA, I wanted to um, hold people accountable in a way that I thought my predecessor didn't because the system was broken. Um, people were getting arrested, but they weren't being held for court. The, the whole criminal justice system in Philadelphia was broken in many ways. I knew that we needed to use data, not just anecdotes. Oh, well, let's do it this way. Rah, rah, rah. No. What are the best practices from all over the country, maybe even all over the world? How can we replicate those things in Philadelphia to make our system more fair? Because, yes, the criminal justice system is broken. Um, we need to make it fair for racial lines, class lines, right? Poor people, poor white people don't get a break either, right? But we also have to make sure it's not an either or. It's not reform a broken racist classist system or have public safety. No, public demands both that they be done both simultaneously. Right. So I ran on a platform of community-based prosecution, making the DA's office respond and mirror the police department geographically. Crimes occur geographically. So we did that in 2010. I got a sworn in January. By November, not only did we reorganize the entire DA's office, but the entire criminal justice courthouse was reorganized geographically. That saved the city money on overtime for police, cases being continued, all of that was being done. And that was done by having a lot of the, the courts, courts at the police station, right? Well, that's where they were. We brought them all downtown. Okay, you brought them all downtown. Got right, you. so that the police would all be downtown. Um, and that took buy-in from the courts, the police, the FOP, uh, the judges, everyone. But it made sense. And again, I learned that you can get a lot of things done if you don't worry about who gets credit for it. Right, so I shared the credit. We got it all done. 
I then found a great partner in Commissioner Charles Ramsey, who was one of the greatest leaders I've ever had the opportunity to rub shoulders with, to, to observe up close and personal. Yeah, I met him a few times. Seemed like a great guy. Just a solid American. Okay. <laughs> and um, we then began, as a result of my community-based prosecution, we then created a uh, partnership with the police to use data, just the statistics. We called it GunStat. So we had a monthly meeting with Commissioner Ramsey and myself, our command staff, his command staff, my deputies, high-ranking people, to look at all the data of where all the gun cases are. Gun possession. In Pennsylvania, it's called a violation of the Uniform Firearms Act, as I know you know. Maybe VUFA. Some of your Rep- listeners might not know. Your viewers might Better not know. Better known to everybody as VUFA. VUFA. Gunpoint robberies, uh, carjackings, uh, aggravated assaults so when you shoot someone. Um, attempted murder, murders, uh, gunpoint rapes, all those things. We followed them all geographically. It's a very small percentage of geographic places where these things were occurring. Yes. And a very small percentage of Philadelphians, less than one half, right, of 1% of all Philadelphians commit about 60% of the violent crimes. So it's about 8,000 people, roughly. Mm. So we then used GunStat. We had these monthly meetings. My office worked with the police department to better prosecute those cases. We put an emphasis. I did a lot of things where we had diversionary hey, programs. Quick, for, is, sure. is GunStat still a thing today that you know of? No. So we created it's community-based called, okay. prosecution, GunStat. That led us to creating focused deterrence. I read a book. Um, by a professor, David Kennedy, from the uh, John Jay School in New York. And I'd seen an episode of Crazy Zizzes from the, from the Wire. And so these two things made me come up with focused deterrence for Philadelphia, where, again, if we were to draw, remember Venn diagrams from uh, eighth grade science? Yep. If I were to draw a circle, right, of those most likely to get shot and superimpose it with the circle of those people most likely to do the shooting, or be shooters, the intersection and the union of those two is about eighty-five, well, about 75%. So if you're telling me that we can identify the people most likely to be shot, the places, the times, because there's an entire ecology of crime, temperature, place, you were out in the streets, you knew so, what you saw. So we actually... So if we know this... yeah and we don't do anything to save these young people that are being shot and killed, then what you're telling me is you just don't give a damn. And that's the problem. I remember because our team used to go on into the streets with these um, statistics. We would team up with local, federal, state prosecu- or, um, law enforcement. We would take this data. It was already there for us. We would go out. We would go to these neighborhoods, and what we would do is we would serve in a night 30, 40 warrants in these areas. Now, it wasn't just about, oh, let's just go lock everybody up. A lot of it was get some bad people off the street, right? have them face the, you know, their, their day, have their day in court. But the other part of it was, for the lesser crimes, getting information Correct. on the, the shootings, the right. murders. I've told this story before. Probably told it a couple of times. One of these incidents happened. Um, one of the operations was in an area, and it was all focused around a young girl who was shot. 
mm-hmm. and killed. I think I believe she had just graduated. I, forgive me for not remembering. Either eighth grade going into high school or high school going into college. But she was a standout uh, student. She was loved in her community, obviously loved by her family, and it was devastating. Something that's sadly missing now because too many kids are being killed and it's just another shooting. Whereas back then, right. a child was shot, all hands were on deck. Right. We had marches when uh, Fahim Childs um, was murdered by a stray bullet. And I remember there was a huge, you know. So my point, though, is that we used data. We used community-based prosecution, led to gun stat, led to focused deterrence. And in 2013, as a result of this effort, and again, it came down to holding people accountable. Right. Not, of course, for when they murdered somebody. And we had the greatest assistant DAs, the best ones in our homicide unit, that in the rape unit, of course. But what made sense was we have to hold people accountable for the illegal possession of handguns. Every shooter, before they shot someone, was carrying the gun. They didn't just shoot the person that day. They, they had it in their car. They were walking on the street. They were doing something with that gun, right? Yes. And so the theory was we have to hold people accountable for VUFA, for p- possessing guns without a license, right? So we did that. Um, if someone w- had a gun case, we went for their, and they had a, um, a case they'd been convicted for, they were on probation or parole. You go and have them violated on their probation or parole for this new gun case. We did all of those things in unison with the police. Great partnership with Commissioner Ramsey, Mayor Nutter, the resources to do this, to do all that we could to make the city safer for everyone, but particularly for these young men, these young black and brown men that were most likely to be shot, most likely to do the shooting. And, Mark, we had the lowest number, still too high. One is too high. But we had the lowest number of homicides in 2013 that we had in 50 years. We had 246 homicides 246. for the entire year. We had 248, which statistically is almost the same the next year. And then, you know, it, it went back up. So I tell people. Still under 300. It went correct. up to 246 in 2013, 248, right. 2014, right. 2015, 280. Then right. back down, right. 2016, And then as a result of my conflict uh, with the United States government, I went to federal prison. I received a 60-month sentence, um, and we've talked about that in the past. Yep. I spent 34 months incarcerated, another six months on house arrest, and I'm on um, supervised release currently. Um, uh, but the successor district attorney, Larry Krasner, who was a career civil rights attorney, um, who focused mostly going against the, the city correct, and the police correct. department. Eliminated community-based prosecution. Eliminated gun stat, the cooperation with the police department. They don't even speak to them now. And disbanded focused deterrence. Have you heard why? What his, has he ever said what his reasonings were? Well, I do that? know that he publicly states that holding people accountable for the illegal possession of guns criminalizes poverty to which I said I've yelled I've done interviews with Steve Keeley right on your on your podcast previously no Larry it criminalizes people who are willing to kill my daughters my friends your family members visitors to our streets right that's 
what it criminalizes. And so when you have a theory that you're not going to prosecute people who carry guns illegally, because his thought process is that anybody now can just go online and get a license. The fact that you didn't must only be due to the fact that you don't have the $30 to pay. No, That's these are people who don't want to do it because... And most of the people can't. Right. They're legally not right. allowed to own a firearm. Right. So there's a whole group of people that that might apply to. Then there's another whole group of people who are like, I'm going to do the blank, the blank, what I want to do. Yes. And we're, so it's a very small percentage of people that are those sociopaths that we're talking about, right? Yep. So, again, what I believe is that when you have that as a theory and the public knows there's no accountability, you're um, not going to be held accountable for carrying a gun illegally. The cops can't even stop you now. If you don't have a bumper on your car or front, you know all types of stuff. Um, they talk Quality of they, life they, crimes. They can't even investigate. They that. act like stop and frisk is some sort of just a policy that America can implement or not. No, it's it's constitutional law pursuant to Terry versus Ohio, and, which is three ninety two U S one, or of the United States Reporter. Um, so and I can tell you and everybody as an officer that did a lot of our arrest on the street because a lot of our fugitives were uh, not at their house. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, in Philly, when you gave an address for when you had to go to court, it wasn't verified. Right. And many of our people that we had to lock up were on the street. So we had to do what was called a pedestrian investigation, a ped stop. Right. Cops do it. We would do it. And that's where a lot of your interaction um, with the public comes into play. And that's a lot of the arrests and the guns are taken off the street and the drugs Correct. because of that moment of interaction. Right. Your our right to stop them, or our probable cause to stop them, which leads to a you know quick investigation, which could lead to guns, right. drugs, the whole nine yards. When you eliminate it, 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 and for people when they hear stop and frisk, cops weren't driving down the street. Oh, let's grab him and jump out, grab him, throw him in the car, and right. frisk him. But that's there wrong. Was a you can't reason. do that. Right. right. And that's but not what, what was happening. I'm sure. Stop and frisk stands for the proposition from Terry versus Ohio that a police officer or a law enforcement person, with um, as a result of their professional experience and personal experience, if you see something that you can reasonably articulate is criminal behavior, you have the absolute right to stop that person because we don't want crimes to occur. If the person in law enforcement has the right to stop that person, they have the absolute right to pat that person down for their own personal safety. Yes. And if while patting them down, they feel the silhouette of what, as a result of their experience, they can reasonably articulate is a weapon, then they do not need to go to a judge and get a search warrant to come back and search that person, but that it's considered a reasonable expectation right a reasonable exception excuse me to the need to get a warrant the, the fourth amendment of the united states constitution says that you know that you have to have a warrant right um in all situations that are reasonable so this is a situation where it would be unreasonable to have to go get a search warrant it's reasonable to allow the police officer just in that situation to take the gun out of the guy's pocket to log it and then see, you know, but if it, it could be that it's a legal gun. It could be that he right, rightfully had the, the right to carry the gun. So anyway, 
And that's gone now. That's right. not and done so at all. As a result of there being no consequences, coupling that with the fact that the DA's office is now mismanaged as people with no experience. When I was a DA, we had 31 assistant DAs, the most qualified, were in our homicide unit. We also had in the six geographic areas that mirrored the police divisions, depending upon the number and the percentage of crimes that that division had, um, we might have an additional three, four, or five ADAs that handled non-fatal shootings, aggravated assaults. Currently, they have 25 assistant DAs that are in this one unit that handles fatal shootings and non-fatal shootings. Um, and these DAs average 60 to 70 cases each. Some of them are doing jury trials, and they haven't only done three jury trials in the past before they got to that unit. Um, so you couple all of that with the fact also that the DA does not want to prosecute retail thefts of less than $1,000. So when you have all of that, that has led we have now, we have more violent crime in every category than ever before. We have more carjackings. And I assert, if in fact you tell people we're not going to hold you accountable for having a gun, we're not going to hold you accountable for theft, you add those two things together, you have more carjackings now than ever before. The entire juvenile court system is almost just no one gets held accountable for anything. Right? And again, don't get me wrong, Mark. I tell people every day, look, it's not the severity of punishment that changes behavior. It's the certainty. It's not sending people away for a million years. It's people just knowing, even if it's for a weekend, a month, if they know there's going to be some specific penalty, some accountability, it makes them pause. It might make them stop. I, I, we discussed this on the way up here. Right. I, our unit, when we would lock up a fugitive, 90% of the people would get out within two to three days. Mm -hmm. A few would be held longer. How it was those two to three days, it was guaranteed you were sitting. There was just no way around it. There was just too many. It was a backlog. It took two days to get to your case to be heard by the bail administrator if you were going to be released or, you know, held, whatever. But the fear of those two to three days in jail, if it was somebody on drugs, they were afraid they were going to get sick. They would give you all the information in the world they had possibly if it was a guy, a drug dealer, he was afraid going away for those two to three days, he could lose his corner right. or his girl may step out on him. Same with a, a woman who isn't, a, you know, wasn't a prostitute, wasn't on But she was afraid, wait, you're, I'm going to go to jail for two to three days. Right. My man may step out on me. Right. And she would give you the info, the amount of information we used to get from the people just afraid to go to jail for those two days was astronomical. Right. But. They were afraid. Today, nobody is afraid of that anymore right. and because so, they're not going to go to jail. Right. And so, Mark, what I talk about in the articles I write that are often published on Broad and Liberty is that I believe the political extremes of both ends, the far left and the far right, are so extreme and so wed to their orthodox perspectives that they're both morally bankrupt and don't want real solutions. The far right want almost unfettered sale of guns to flood the street. The far left want to, want to prohibit almost any 
successful means of law enforcement of getting guns out of the hands of people that most likely are going to shoot and kill people. So the ban plays on and more mothers grieve. And we have the highest rate right now, as you mentioned, we have 337 and counting homicides in Philadelphia, which is a 4% increase over the bloodiest, the, the, the highest rate of murder in our history, city's history. So again, what's important to recognize is that the far left, Larry Krasner and his ilk, will say that um, mass incarceration is wrong. And these are the statistics. And by having stop and frisk or doing prosecuting people without licenses for guns, it just fills the people up with prisons with jail, pr- fills the jails with people. Right. That's all right. Mass incarceration is wrong. I get that. But the opposite is equally true. Mass decarceration, where no one's held accountable, is equally wrong and is leading to the homicides where 80 percent of the victims, the people that Krasner says he loves the most. Right. You have these far these white progressives that think they tell black people what's good for black people. Well, 80 percent of the homicides are black men that's that, shooting that, and killing each other. That, that's one of the things that drives me up a wall. It is Krasner sits up there. I am champion for the black man or, the you know, the black person who has been right. You know, wrongfully um, abused with the criminal system, right. which has happened, and they need, and we need champions. And I'm one. We need champions. I got that, but but then he blindly but what, closes his eyes when well, so right. The so, same people are affected and so killed. Mass incarceration, mass decarceration are equally dumb, <laughs> equally uh, unfounded, right? And we need to be strategic. We need to put the right people, the right people. Like I said, if you're willing to carry a gun without a license, you're really, you're willing to kill my daughters, right? You're willing to kill my girlfriend. You're willing to kill people that I go to church with every day at lunchtime. You're willing to kill just some random stranger, and over nothing. Right? And, and as I don't know, Chris Rock said it. Gotta go, gotta go. I don't know who said it, which comedian it was. Um, the person who made it a mistake had a bad day, we have to be able to discern who that person is and address the criminogenic needs. What's wrong with that person? Is they need vocational training? Do they need rehab? Or do they have a drug uh, addiction that we need to address? Do they need to get their GED? Do they need just conflict resolution skills? Right? we got to figure out what's going on with this person. And as a person who was in prison, I was in federal prison, I taught GED, almost nothing is done to address the root causes of why the people got there. So right. it's a complete, Jail was originally meant for rehabilitation. It's like a complete waste. But it's so my it's thoughts now that we, to, if we're going to do anything significant to reduce homicides in Philadelphia, we have to, you know, really think of it in three ways. One, I think step one is to make guns like kryptonite. Right? Even Superman can't come. Kryptonite can't come anywhere near him. Right? We have to let people know. Right. You carry a gun illegally, and we catch you. You're going to jail. Now, is that done? That's got to be done through the state, right? We already have the laws for it. So, so Section 6108 of the Pennsylvania Crimes Code is specific to Philadelphia, a city of the first class. Right. Philadelphia is the only city of the first class. We can make that a mandatory sentence: one year, two years. I agree. So in New York State, they made the illegal possession of a handgun, carrying a gun without a license, 
a mandatory sentence of two years. And if you remember, there was a football player, the Steeler, Plexico Burris. Yeah. He was in a club, got a little close to a woman. I guess he got a little he too shot excited. Himself, right? He shot himself in the leg with, in a gun without a license. Despite his notoriety, he went to jail for two years. Yep. So with that, under Mayor Bloomberg and the legislature of Harrisburg, and I think, I forget who the governor was at the time, but gun violence, right? New York, eight times the size of the city of Philadelphia, the population, went from having about 2,000 homicides a year to less than 500. Yeah. Right? New York has less than Philadelphia does right now, a city of 1.6 million. I know. It's crazy. Right? For, so... One, we have to make carrying guns like kryptonite. These guys got to know, got a gun, it's too hot. If you, get, if you use it and you get caught, you're going to jail. Because like you said, these guys don't want to lose a weekend because they might lose their corner. They might lose their woman. They might, who know, you know, it's just they can't lose. They, so if you hold them accountable and you let people know this is going to happen, it's not random. It's got to be, the punishment has to be certain. Even and if plus, it, when you make it mandatory, you take it out of Krasner's hands. Right. No. Right. In all, all the cases that were mandatory, right, I try, I try to demanitorize and change our policies not to hold people accountable. Um, sorry, not to hold them accountable, but not to have mandatory sentences for a lot of drug cases. Okay. Okay. Um, but everyone for, for gun cases. Right. So I saw the difference. Now, you could argue with Seth, you shouldn't have done that. Because it allowed people that were strong. Now, we wanted to treat drug addiction as a public health crisis, um, not solely as a criminal justice problem. So that, that was I'm willing to take the heat for that if people want to disagree. But got to hold people accountable for, holding, for shooting guns, as I saw it. Um, so we have to make it a mandatory. And again, I'm, not, I'm opposed to most mandatory sentences. But my point to you was, correctly, Anything that's a mandatory, the DA has a discretion to demanitorize. Oh, okay, he does. Right. So if he were to do that, then we just have to, again, shame him. But step one, make guns kryptonite. Two, step two, make the illegal gun possessor like lepers in the community. We have to shame them. We have to have like billboards or heroes of the people, like some famous rapper that they respect, who I don't even know the names of right now. Or athletes like Brandon Graham or somebody they like, right? Jalen Hurts, somebody, somebody's popular. Say, yo, man, carrying guns is for punks. You know, real men talk it out. Real men try to solve their problems. Real men don't just throw 40 bullets down the street and murder a lady who's just out trying to barbecue in the middle of August. We ain't going to do that. I'm trying not to curse on here, Mark, but it really, it really pisses me right off, ahead. right? So we have to be able to do that. We have to shame these people. And put pictures of them up. I Just know. like they used to do with the Johns in the or, Daily News. Right? Or what happened to me. I understand it. And whenever I write something, people want to shame me on Twitter. Oh, he did this. He did that. Okay, whatever. But people are still killing each other. And I'm still trying to talk about how we can end that. Right? But shaming them. Put their pictures up. He chose. This coward chose to do this. He carried a gun illegally. He was willing to kill everybody on his block. Put them up on social media. Make it so that... They get shamed for it, not like they're revered for carrying a gun. Because if you look on a lot of these guys' Instagram pages, they got nothing but guns. They're doing all types of stuff. Yeah. So that's one, two, and three, rehab. Yeah, we need to hold them accountable for the possession of a gun, 
before they go and shoot and kill someone because then they're going to spend their life in prison. If we can just stop them early, give them that one-year sentence, give them the help they need during that one year, hopefully a significant percentage will not go on to kill people. right? And we're not even talking about we have a 25% increase this year in shootings. But for the phenomenal trauma centers we have at Temple, Penn Presbyterian, right, Einstein, but for the trauma units we have and those professionals who bring back lives and the police officers, the men and women that scoop them up, right, more people yeah. get taken to the, to the hospital after being shot by police than ER, than, than the ambulances, right, than the fire department taking people. Yeah. The EMTs. Number two is just civilians putting people in cars and taking them. It's it's crazy. You know, again, the, the police have had their own problems and issues in the past. And I, I think it's starting to change a little bit now where people are starting to understand and respect the cops again a little bit. But what people don't realize, like you said, if a patrol car rolls up on a scene and there's a guy bleeding. Right. They're not going to stop, put their gloves on, throw their mask. They're going to grab that guy, put him in the back seat of the car, and they're going to fly right. and try to save his or her life. Correct. They don't care what color the person is. Call him ahead. They don't even care what hey, what the crime may have happened beforehand. They're just going to get them, get them there trying soul. to save that life at that right. moment. Because at that exact moment, the humanity of that cop right. comes out. Right. You know, I was there. I know what it's like to, to do the job, to see the same horrors of people's lives day in and day out it wears on you it takes a toll right it makes you numb makes you not care but at that moment they get up and they go and they try to save that life you know the issue the problem that we are all seeing is our leaders seem without saying i don't care they are saying i don't care right like you said it's 80 percent of the people killed today are young black men black on black crime Krasner sits there and like he said, like you said, he's the champion of of the um black community. I am here, I'm going to fix this. He is more concerned about cops and trying to punish any right. cop possible than the major problem, which is black on black crime. Right. Three hundred thirty seven murders today, eighty percent of which are young black men. Here's the other crazy part. A lot of them are women and children now. Yes, we have a, a, a spike in homicides. I can't imagine what that of, number of is. Women. And many of them are other women shooting women, which goes to just the people having no fear. The breakdown. Having more guns flooding the streets, having more access to guns, having um, in many ways more lethal guns, right, than we've had before. Have greater magazine capacities, uh, I know. You got a whole lot of I will say this about the guns, and I know there's people on both sides. I think the the gun issue and the you know accessibility to them have always been there. Right. The difference is back when you were district attorney, back when I was on the street, it took a lot for a person to say, you know what, I am going to use this gun today. Right. I mean, it wasn't just spontaneous. It wasn't. I'm just going to go shoot up the block. I mean, it happened, but nowhere near the numbers today. And that's because the fear. There's no fear. I had the gun back then. There was a fear of using it. That was almost last resort. Today, there's just no fear. Right. It is 
scary how how willing a person is to just throw bullets down the street, hit anybody, and they're hitting women, they're hitting children. When that would happen before, I remember police districts would go out in force, state troopers would come in, operations would be put in place. If a little girl got shot in West Philly, 52nd and Market would be surrounded by cops spreading out all over the place, you know, keeping law and order, showing right. a presence. Today, no? Yeah. And it's so, just another sad news story. And, and again, the, th- the policies and strategies I was telling you that we implement in Philadelphia um, have been replicated in other places. So Jack Stoltzheimer, who is the district attorney of Delaware County, where we are right now, not far from his office, he hired several former assistant district attorneys from Philadelphia, um, beginning with Tanner Rouse, who is his first assistant, and other assistant DAs, and they have replicated folks' deterrence in partnership with the mayor, Mayor Thaddeus Kirkland of Chester, with um, Police Commissioner Gretzky of Chester, um, and they have reduced homicides in Chester by 40% at a time when there has been an increase significantly in Philadelphia and nationally. So for people to say, well, it's just a pandemic, yeah, no, not no more. Right. So Krasner wants to blame everyone for the, the police who he hates, the judges, um, the bail commissioners. Now he's blamed me. He's blamed prosecutors in surrounding counties that hold people accountable for He's blamed everybody. But the Philly fanatic, as uh, I've told you before, I want to ask you this for this process. So, all right, like you just said, now this is successful. It's working in Chester. Uh, for right. anyone that's not familiar with our area, Chester is the county right below Philadelphia. No, Delaware County is the county, uh, right? It's and like Chester's a city. There's also a Chester Delaware. County, but right. Chester the city, Chester the city, is in Delaware County. Below, it's below uh, Philadelphia, going right. south. It's so like West Philly, West West Philly is Delaware County. West and yeah, I, I always <laughs> look at it from up top, looking down. You right. know what I mean? Right. My, you know, I I retail up top now. So you like you just said, Krasner blames everybody. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you the process and explain to the people. Um, Break down this process. So, person gets locked up for a gun. Right. Now, what Krasner does is he will go on the news and tell the world, we asked for a $999,000 bail. Right. And it got rejected. It's not our fault. Can you explain the farce in that whole situation right there? Why it's not, why well, first he's of all, blowing smoke up everyone's asses because, that may not understand? Because if the judge doesn't give the DA the amount, that the DA asked for, the bail commissioner, the DA can appeal that, right? So then a, a municipal court judge will hear it, why the DA wants to have, and put on record why the DA wants to have a higher bail. Um, so the question is, for when he says that, the question should be asked, or people should subpoena the records, well, in what percentage did he appeal those? None, right? Very little. All right, the other issue is that DAs such as myself across the state, um, there's a case called Daisy Cates. So if, in fact, a defendant is on, has, has another conviction and is on probation or parole, I am currently on federal supervised release. If, in fact, a person gets arrested on a new case, that can be, that is a direct violation of the underlying case in which they're on probation or parole. And that can be the reason for them to be violated and to serve their back time or for that judge to give them some new sentence. Okay? 
That's separate and distinct from the new charge, the new arrest. When I was the DA, and DAs across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in all 67 counties will have hearings requesting that the judge on the other case, the previous case, to violate the person on the new case. Krasner being the consummate defense attorney now in the DA's office has a policy requesting, you know, suggesting to his ADAs to withdraw prosecution on the, the new gun case so as not to violate because they don't want people to be violated. Now, again, that decision is to be made by the judge. The judge is a neutral arbiter elected by the people to determine that. The DA is supposed to be the champion for justice, yes, but for public safety, for victims, and we just don't have that advocate any longer in Philadelphia. We and, just have two defense attorneys in a courtroom. Uh, that's exactly what it is. And the other thing what people don't realize is when he throws the ball in a judge's court, a judge uh, in Philadelphia, I'm not sure if it's statewide, they're not allowed to respond publicly. Correct. They, they, have, they can't do anything. Only in the opinions that they write. So in opinions that have been written by um, Judge Goldberg, Greenberg, in federal court, calling into question the uh, veracity, the honesty of Larry Krasner and the people that he sends to court, as well as most recently uh, by Judge uh, Justice, Associate Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Kevin Doherty, severely calling into question the veracity of Larry Krasner when they make these various arguments about cases. Um, so that's the only way that the judge can really say something publicly is through a legal opinion. Right, they can't go in front of a They uh, can't just stand reporter. up in front of, right, right. It's not like on some TV shows where the judge just rips into somebody on TV. No, you can't do it that way. Let me ask you, the. Uh, I'm sure you still have uh, people that give you information and stuff. What is the, the morale of the district attorney, the, those district ADAs that are currently there, right. are so, they just lockstep with Krasner? Like so about, on, on day one, he fired 31 assistant DAs that were some of the most experienced, most because he had personal grudges against them for him beating for them beating him in cases right. as assistant DAs, or he just thought that their policies were whatever, um, or he just didn't like them, or whatever, personal grudges and vendettas. That was 31. You have a uh, staff about then about 300 assistant DAs. So more than 10% of those with the most significant experience were just fired. Many um, left soon thereafter. He brought in his own people. But the attrition rate of the people he's even brought in, even though he has the highest rate of those failing the bar when he brings them in, there's extreme people just leaving in droves who thought they knew what his policies were came in, a guy named Mandrakia has written many columns about him being one of these assistant DAs and what he's learned and what he saw. I've seen his stuff, yeah. So yes, people contact me, people who are leaving the office contact me to tell me that basically the morale has never been as low as it is. Um, that you have, they don't apply any of the old rules that you know, you're supposed to live in the city. Almost the majority of the, the deputies live outside of the city and it's like a secret, like they're making, they're making a mockery of all the rules that the, the city home rule charter has. Um, the training is abysmal. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, but again, his PR is such that a lot of the people think, well, he has, he has exonerated more people than anybody ever did. Okay, that's good. And we should exonerate people. People don't, who aren't, shouldn't be in jail should be, we, out. should be out of jail. Yeah. Got I, that. That's why I created. No one can argue that. That's why I, I created the Conviction Integrity Unit, right, to, to do just that.
Um, and ironically, but, the ironically, lady that was in charge of it was it Patricia Cummings. Right. Like, like if you opened up her skeleton, her right. closet and the skeletons. Right. So anyway, uh, I'm not going to do that. Right? Yeah, that's my, all my whole thing. point though is that um, they think it's more important to exonerate people than hold people accountable that have murdered 562 people last year. You or can now, do them both equally. We can do them both. But that's like, because he's done that, it like gives him a pass in a lot of communities that think, oh, well, he must be. And also because people, quite honestly, they really just don't know what the DA does or that the DA has an effect, right? And so I think that if the DA were to reinstate community-based prosecution, work with the police to track all illegal gun crimes, um, and then focus on prosecuting people that carry guns illegally, demanding accountability of them, putting qualified, trained people to handle those cases that do go to trial, um, that we would see a significant reduction in homicides by changing the policy that we're not going to prosecute VUFAs or that we don't really care. We went from a conviction rate of about 71% the last year I was in office for VUFA cases. That number is down to 42%. When I was a DA, the last year I was a DA in 2017, the rate of cases that we just withdrew was 17. That number is 62% yeah, now. Yeah, I've seen that number. That's so he crazy. has people just go in and just withdraw charges. The public needs to know that. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing. That's what needs to be public. The shaming needs to be, here's what... Here's the cases that got dismissed today. Right. Here's the cases they withdrew. Right. And they should have to answer why. Right. You know, it's the easy to blame, oh, the cops. We weren't comfortable with the search. Right. And it's just such a blanket, you know, oh, yeah, we weren't comfortable with the way they did this, that, and the other. And they blame everybody else. Let me ask you, has Krasner either directly or indirectly ever tried to contact you to talk, say, hey, what did you do? No, what, he went what, what do you the think exact opposite. I know, were, he, I know in public he, in back, he tries to go after you. Yeah, when, when they're going after him for why the homicide rate is so high, he'll say, well, you should ask Seth Williams. To which Steve Keeley asked me that one. I was like, okay, okay sure, I'll show up and I'll tell you exactly what he should be doing. But uh, he needs to take – see, I'm in his head. He needs to focus on saving lives, right? Mayor Kenny claimed – that not once in the entire time he's been in office has he met with the families of murder victims. I heard that. I couldn't believe it. And, Mark, I have to you know, be honest with you. Part of the reason why I uh, had some of my problems is because I just couldn't. It was just too much for me. I began numbing myself uh, with too many martinis and uh, meeting with a guy named Jack Daniels because I just couldn't deal with, in some ways, in healthier ways, um, the trauma that I had, which was in nothing compared to the families that I met with, you know, the groups of them, individually, on the phone, going to funerals. Or cases you may have lost that you wanted I to try I was at dinner with my girlfriend. Imagine. At dinner with my girlfriend, we got the notice that uh, Officer Robert Wilson III had been shot. We get rushed to the trauma bay at Temple. I'm standing there with Mayor Nutter. Um, the managing director, uh, Commissioner Ramsey, Officer Wilson's family, police officers who are crying. He gets, uh, you know, they 
say he's they declare him to be dead in front of us and uh, just doing things like that repeatedly. Um, and so I think, though, by doing those, going and talking to those people, having them bear their souls to me, also having them scream at me that they wanted something done and that we weren't doing enough, that really drove me every day to know what my job was. It's... Uh, I- I wasn't nowhere near the level of how you were. You were interacting with the people day in and day out. But I could tell you, you know, as an officer on the street, seeing the worst of people every day right. and what a lot of the cops do see the worst. It, 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 it makes them cynical. It, it makes it, them, it's, shuts them off. It, 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 it breaks you down in so many different ways. And then you try to fight it back. You know, I, I remember I had to leave the shift. I was on a very productive, great shift with all my friends. Friends, I'm still, you know, great friends that I'm with still to this day. And I left to go to a quieter, more basically useless shift because of everything I saw. That's how I dealt with it. And, you know, I understand. I can only imagine you being the district attorney, one of the top people in the city, seeing it day in and day out, how it affected you and, you know, what led to the the issues. Sure. When I look at our district attorney today. He doesn't care. Right. You can literally see how he just sits up there like, ah, yeah, not me, him. It's her fault. It's the cop's fault. It's this person's fault. And you can tell, I don't feel, I, I felt a little bad for Kenny. Although when he said that about not meeting families, I, I almost oh, fell right. out of my chair. Because Jim used to be a friend of mine. I wanted the best for him. And I still do, but it, clearly he's just he's but when checked he, out. And he he let it out when Chris O'Donnell asked him, hey, are you almost happy this is almost over? And he said, I can't I wait till I'm not wait. the mayor. Uh, you know, it's like, wow, wow there it is. Right. There's here's the problem. Mic drop. You're done. Right. You're, you are completely out of it. You know, the shark's already in the water with who wants to take his spot in right. the city council people, which will be no better. Right. And you got the one extreme, the extreme white progressive uh, <laughs> Helen Gim. Right, right. <laughs> who who yelled and chanted through bullhorns, defund the police. You got her, and yeah. yet she's so far left. And you got a lot of other people that are kind of moderate. Well, that, and that's and the, then all the moderate, the rational people will choose between all these people, and then the wackadoodle will win. They need somebody. You need somebody that's not a part of the system anymore. Right. You really need somebody that comes in that nobody knows that could come in with fresh ideas, a fresh outlook, because this is absolutely insanity. Right. What we are seeing. And this is happening, you know, prominently in you know West Philly, North Philly. But guess what? It's spread to every neighborhood and beyond. You know, yeah. the, like you said, the carjackings are at, at a rate that I didn't think was even humanly possible. We had a homicide at the clothespin, right at, across, right, right, like right, right, fifty yards from during City Hall. the day, Seventeenth and JFK, right by across the street from the Comcast building. So now you also have. Convenience stores, mom and pop stores, drug stores, the CVS right there by Comcast, right by the new Four Seasons Hotel. Mm. Closing. Yeah, a lot of them shutting down. Is it yeah. Because the retail theft, their shrinkage, the stealing, theft from them is so high and they don't want to put their employees at risk of, you know. And it's a business. You're going to lose money. Losing it, money. It's not free. Which like, puts our uh, <clears throat> citizens who need those jobs, fewer jobs less convenient for people to go to places, you know. But again, the far left say, oh, no, they're just closing because 
they don't want to have union employees or they uh, yeah it's a little too far here you're being a wackadoodle I, I, I think <laughs> it, it, it's not hard to say this is and this is where the extreme politics come into play and this is where now the other side that like you know the Republicans will take over in November because of how far left they went whatever side you're on you may be happy about it you may be sad about it, it it's so insane to think that both sides can't come together meet in the middle and do what's just right for your citizens. I get it. You may get voted out because that hundred, I don't know what city council makes now, buck 60 a year. Probably. I think it's probably even, I think it's a buck 75 free gas. People don't realize city council members get a car, right. free gas. All the gas is free. They don't pay for a nickel of it. They get the lifetime benefits. <laughs> they get a drop program the day they retire, collect all this money. Then they can go back. It's the, the incentive to stay in office is so high for them, they will sacrifice the, the citizens of this city, and that's what's been happening. Right. And Krasner's been leading the way, and it's sad to see. I was in law enforcement during your time. It was safe. There was a, uh, one incident I didn't like. Uh, you did a couple things with uh, the, the warrants. There were so, there's so many warrants. <laughs> Real quick, NBC10 did a ride-along with the sheriff's department. Who took over our court warrant unit? Uh, they took over all the warrants to go out and serve. They said there's something like 1,800 warrants out right now. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a flat-out lie. There's over 30,000. Has always been. There's always been a 20, 30, 40,000 range. But you did um, a safe surrender right. where you dropped thousands of warrants. If you just came in, said, hey, here I am, and it was a nonviolent case, you dropped them. I remember we were like, oh, what is he doing? Yeah, But – Looking back today, also it was because smart. because we want them to come in and then get a subpoena for a new court date on on something, as opposed to see a lot of your guys, the most violent. A police officer stops a person in the middle of the night out in the street. This when more homicides happen because a person sure. is just scared because they got a warrant or something, or when the warrant guys go knock on the door in the middle of the night and scare people. You got people like well, innocent people can get shot and killed yeah. too. And so it's just really about harm reduction. Is it the best thing? No. You want people to show up for their court dates. But all that being understood, what can we do to diffuse the situation, reduce the possibility of harm to both the warrant officers, the kid who's in the bed next to dad, right, his girlfriend, the, the wife, get him in for something just to, just to start over, dude. Sure. So and, that was a thought. And, and like I said, and I'm willing back, to accept, the, you know, people think that's a bad thing. Okay. But at the time, I just had the information that I had, had to make the best decisions at that time. And most of it were warrants where, yeah, you know what? Write them off. Who cares? The problem today is, you know, there was a reason. There was a mission behind why you did it. Right. And it, it worked out. Today, there's just the mission is not hold anybody accountable and it's sad and it's scary right um well listen everybody i want to thank everyone for joining back in today seth what uh what do you got going on if anyone needs any sure. help or wants to contact you i know you're doing a lot well, for people, people can follow me on twitter at new seth williams um i am creating through my llc second chance strategies in partnership with uplift solutions and first african baptist church in west philadelphia a vocational training center for returning citizens homeless veterans and the chronically unemployed to learn um, two vocations, to become HVAC techs, to be certified um, and receive an EPA Section 608 certification. It's the entry-level 
to become an HVAC tech or to get their um, commercial driver's license class B. And there's a huge need for both HVAC technicians and truck drivers. And in addition to learning the skill, we're going to really focus on the skills that people need that I learned when I taught GED in prison. It's not just getting a job. People need to know how to keep a job. They need to learn conflict resolution, financial literacy, parenting skills, right? Um, all these things that help people keep a job. The greatest ability is availability, show up. So we'll be doing that. It starts uh, September the 7th. People can email me at seth.williams at Uplift Solutions. But I really believe that if we're going to reduce crime, uh, reduce recidivism, the rate of people who get arrested over and over and over again, uh, make the city safer, build stronger people and families and communities. We need to really train people um, in vo vocations, especially people who are coming home from prison, who in many ways have no other option. Let's give them a vocation. They can get a job. They can become their own entrepreneur in the future, their own business owner if they want. Um, and Will it solve every crime? Of course not. Will it no, it's not the, the silver bullet, the magic bean to everything, but I think it'll significantly help. And this is a way that I think I can be of most service right now as a result of my experience as a DA, as a criminal defense attorney, as an inmate formerly incarcerated, um, and as an educator to use all these, the combination, the totality of those things. Um, and I'm really excited about it. So if anybody's interested, um, it's free. It's a 12-week program. It's primarily, again, for people who are SNAP eligible, right, to get them off the rolls of welfare, um, but homeless veterans as well, chronically unemployed people. Um, everybody will get a $100 a week stipend, a SEPTA key card to get there, free lunch every day. Oh, wow. Um, barrier removal. So I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that's awesome. Uh you're still doing something. I'm trying. Um, God is good. I hope. Hey, maybe Mr. Krasner, you guys can reach out, have a, a nice little chat together, or, I know or a celebrity boxing match to raise money for the school district. <laughs> right? Yeah. How do you think about that? <laughs> Eddie, I, I think you would. Uh, it would raise a lot of money. There would be a lot of pay per view buys. I'm here ready. I'm ready. Like. I'm ready. But seriously, everyone, thank you for uh, checking in again. <laughs> you have any questions? Reach out. The man's great. Everybody, Thank you very talk much, to you Martin. soon. Take Thanks, care. Brother. Be safe. Time to play the game.